We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey there, Knicks fans. How you doing? It's your boy, John of the Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. We are in the thick of preseason basketball. It's it's uh, it's 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 basketball. It's not really basketball. It's like 75 percent. It's like 70. No, it's like 65 percent of real basketball. Something like that. Somewhere in that in that general vicinity. Um, I'm going to have some thoughts on that uh, in just a moment. Uh, but first, a couple orders of business. First of all, uh, thank you to the great Andrew Claudio and Jeremy Cohen, uh, who filled in for me this past weekend uh, with the normal, you know, the normal beginning of the week show as I was finishing up my vacation in uh, the happiest place on earth, Disney World. Yes, took took the fam down to Florida for uh, I guess about five days. Um, this was really our first, really first kind of family vacation, first vacation of any kind that we've had uh, since before we have had kids. If if you you know, we like we've driven places and like you know stayed in like whatever jersey for a couple nights or pennsylvania or something that doesn't really count and then we go down and visit my mom in florida every uh every february but again we're staying in like a guest room this was like the first real true vacation that we've done since before we had uh our our oldest daughter and i gotta say it was a blast uh they disney world lived up to its name lived up to its reputation um my older daughter had a fantastic time my younger daughter did not know really what was going on but that was fine and uh, special, special shout outs to whoever conceived of, built and executed the vision of the Guardians of the Galaxy ride in Epcot. Man, let me tell you, anybody listening to this going down to Disney World anytime soon, make your way to Epcot and wake up at 7 a.m. to get yourself on like whatever the, the virtual queue is. I, f- I forget how we did it. I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. My wife got like some kind of lightning lane thing 
where you, you get to you know, put a time in for your, or you get a time to go to the ride, whatever it was, it allowed us to go on that ride. And man, uh, amazing stuff. Um, best, best theme park ride I think I've ever been on. Uh, a close second, though, I would say a tie between the two Star Wars rides uh, at, uh, at Disney, at the, what was it, Hollywood Studios, right? Um, so the Rise of the Resistance, awesome stuff. And then uh, the, whatever the Millennium Falcon ride was, which I'm forgetting the name of. Both, both great, great rides. Anyway, so uh, thank you again to Andrew and Jeremy for filling in for me while I was uh, in the Florida sun. And thanks to Andrew for taping the interview, recording the interview that you are about to hear with the director of the Jeremy Lynn documentary that we, of course, celebrated last week. That celebration is continuing into today's episode, 38 at the Garden, uh, Frank Chi. So we got uh, a chance to meet Frank at the premiere. Amazing guy. Andrew obviously gets to talk to him on this one for, uh, you know, further celebration of the documentary and they get into all kinds of fun stuff. So stay tuned for that. But before you hear that conversation, uh, I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts because I I realized that other than the first post game after the, the Pistons win, I haven't really shared my thoughts on the Knicks preseason. Uh, I'll be brief because, you know, I'll have a, a more opportunity to do this. I think I'm recording a mailbag episode uh, in a couple of days, but just, you know, briefly uh, impressive stuff, impressive stuff that to me seems as valid as preseason can seem against two teams who will almost certainly be in the bottom uh, quarter of NBA teams this season. So lots of grains of salt here that, that you have to take this stuff with, but I think it's okay to get excited because the things that look good seem at the moment to be real and sustainable. First and foremost, for me at least, uh, and I, he's, I know he's not number one for a lot of people. We'll get to the guy who's number one for a lot of people right now, but uh, Jalen Brunson, uh, as you know, from listening to the podcast uh, all summer long, I thought the moment that Jalen Brunson signed with the Knicks, he immediately became the Knicks best player. And I have done seen absolutely nothing to dissuade me from that notion through two preseason games. He has not only a command of the offense, you know, like I know we've all been, you know, celebrating the Knicks finally got a point guard. The Knicks finally got a point guard. Well, I think there was some question about at certain points through Jalen Brunson's career, like, okay, he's a point guard, but he's really more of a combo guard. And like how, how much of a true point guard is he? Can he direct a full-time offense as a starter in the NBA? Like these were still questions that I think people had up until last season. And now finally given the role, not only is he running the show like a seasoned veteran, but he's also just absolutely brilliant with the basketball. Um, and he, I know he didn't shoot it well in the second game. I, 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 I've seen enough. He is every bit as advertised. His bag is bottomless. And I think the fact that the Knicks now have a guy for the first time, really, I guess, since Derek Rose's first 
well, not first season here. His second, his second go around with the Knicks. The you know the 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 we here season. That's the last time they've had a guy who it's like, okay, we know this guy can get us a bucket pretty much anytime we need. Well, now they got two, and they're both point guards. Um, we'll see if Rose has lost a step. He looks pretty good so far, so that's been encouraging as well. It's another another positive sign. So very high on Brunson. Um, next, I'll go to RJ and Julius for different reasons. One, the RJ shot. Oh boy, uh, I'm buying it. I'm buying it every which way. Give me all the stock I could possibly attain without breaking like FCC laws. Um, I if if the shot is real, and again, I think it is. It adds such a dimension because at that, if the shot is real and he just progresses at a natural rate on defense, it really takes out any possible downside to the extension. And like, I know we've all been singing the praise of the praises of the extension. And I love the extension for what it is. And I think it's going to be a bargain, but like that extension was signed more for what RJ has shown on the ball than what he, you know, the, the, the certainty of what he does without the ball in his hands. And if he is this level of shooter um, and the shooting is back after it kind of went away for a season, it's just so important because it means you could use him in so many different ways. And if he continues to add to his arsenal when he has the ball and like, there are still some, some holes there that I, that worry me. I I did not love his decision-making in the second game. I think he still takes too many shots that I just don't love. Um, I think he needs to make more passes on those, on those drives to the rim, but like all in all, he's looked good. He's had some nice finishes, but the shooting is where it's at for me. And Julius, I gotta say, I'm even more impressed with Julius because Julius, I think especially in the second game, I just like how he went about his business. I like how he was looking to pass. I like when he was looking to pass. I like the pace that he's playing with. It's like all the things that all of the 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 people who were in Julius's corner would say over the summer about like, look, what if he adjusts his game? Well, it seems like he's at least making an, a pretty overt effort to adjust his game, which that was always for me the biggest hurdle would he make the effort to to say okay i know i am now one of three big you know between him and rj and and jalen brunson it seems like that is what has happened maybe he was told in no uncertain terms they didn't have a choice um but he's done it seems to be embracing it and the pulling it off is actually for me less I'm less worried about that part. I think he could pull it off. Um, it was just about is his is his headspace correct, and I, and it seems to be so far. Those are my top three. Obviously, for a lot most people, it's all about Obi, and Obi just looks great, and you know the dunks, and he hit four threes, and like yeah, I love all that too. Um, I think Obi looks really great. I think both Obi and quickly, you could put them both in the same basket in that. They came in as rookies quickly, obviously was more advanced than, than Obi as a rookie. And it, you know, it paid off in, in playing time and big shots and everything, but like Obi made a leap from year one to year two, or he made, he made, he had significant growth. Let's just say that quickly. It wasn't as linear because he came out of the gates firing, maybe had a bit of a, a rough time for most of, or at least the first two thirds of last season. And then really turned on the jets towards the end. I guess why I'm not 
making as big of a deal about the two of them is because I, I sort of half expected what we're kind of seeing, which is guys who going from year two to year three, which typically in the NBA, that's the, that's the time where you're going to see the biggest leap. They look like kind of what I expected them to look like, which is like, I don't know, fifth or sixth or at worst seventh men on a really good basketball team. And it sets up this kind of very interesting situation, which we've been theorizing about uh, would be one word for the better part of the, the summer. And really since the end of last season, which is like, you know, the Knicks don't have the talent at the top that most of the other teams in the league have almost all the other teams in the league have, you could argue, but how many other teams have guys who are there? Cause really quickly, I, I still think like their six man is Derek Rose. Like maybe I'm wrong about that, but I still think Derek Rose is their six man. And he's the guy that when he's in there, he's still going to be playing a pivotal role in a lot of ways as the guy running the offense. So if quickly is like your seventh man, and what does that make? Obi, your eighth man, and I guess whoever doesn't start at shooting guard is like the ninth man. Like the the point of this of this little thing is to not delegate anybody to being the the eighth or ninth man. It's to say that the Knicks have a bench of guys as of right now who all of whom and and throw Hartenstein in there to Hartenstein, excuse me. Um, all of these guys would be maybe the best or second best bench player on, I don't want to say every team in the league, but like a vast majority of teams in the league. And when you look at even the depth of their starting lineup, we just went through Brunson, RJ and Julius, like this is a capital T team. And the Knicks had a chance to add a, in my estimation, a capital S star this summer and whether they botched the trade negotiations and that's why Donovan Mitchell isn't here or whether they actually really did put their foot down and they were like, nope, we are offering this much and we will not offer more than that. And that is it. Whatever, whatever happened, like they don't have that guy and they're going this different route. And I think this season is going to be a test of how far you can get in the NBA without a, you know, forget a top 20 player. Like, I don't know. Could you make an argument that Jalen Brunson is a top 40 guy? Sure. I think you can make an argument that he's a top 40 guy. Hell, RJ Barrett, you can make an argument that he's, by the end of the season, he might be considered a top 40 guy. Julius Randle was a top 40 guy 12 months ago. So, like, yeah, you can make arguments for all these all these guys being higher than their, their ESPN rankings. I think ESPN had them all in, like, the 50s and 60s or whatever. Um but they don't have, you know, the guys that typically you rely on to have big time seasons uh, as a as a contending team. We'll see if the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And what would that look like? What record would that would that produce? I, you know, I don't I don't really know. I, well, I think we see what it looks like. I think we see it's a brand of basketball that is unrelenting and that there is never there is never a presuming good health or decent health. I don't think you're ever going to see a drop off with this team where it's like, oh man, how are we going to get through this next stretch? Or 
like last season, that stretch was the first five minutes of the game because the starters were in and the starters couldn't do anything right um, during certain segments uh, of the season. I, I think all that's in the past. And I am encouraged enough from what we've seen, again, through two preseason games against bad teams to feel like this is going to be a functional starting unit on offense. It's going to be a good uh, unit on defense and the bench is going to be the best bench in the league. And I think if you give me those three things, and I think I've seen enough to buy into all three of those things, I think you're looking at the very least at a winning basketball team and maybe something a little bit better than that, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, Andrew told me to record an intro that was like 10 to 13 minutes long. And I'm fairly certain I've gone well beyond that. So enough for me. Uh, Here is Andrew Claudio's interview with the director of 38th Garden, Frank Chi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey guys, quick break to tell you about Factor. Factor makes it easy to eat clean 24-7 with fresh, never frozen, prepared meals that are so delicious you wouldn't believe they're actually good for you. Factor saves you time by delivering chef-crafted meals to your doorstep, eliminating the hassle of grocery shopping and meal prep. Not to mention cleanup, no dishes to wash here. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. That's even faster than ordering in. Factor tackles the tough stuff, so I don't have to. Their registered dietitians and expert chefs work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. And with 29 meal options each week, I'm never bored. Going off script for this next part to tell you just how convenient and delicious I've found Factor. My to-do list is usually never-ending. I rarely have time for meal prep. When Factor sent me a box to test out, I chose the extra protein option. They sent me a week's worth of meals, and I had no idea just how convenient this was going to be. Each meal comes pre-prepared. You just put it in the microwave for two minutes, wait another two minutes for it to cool down, and boom, in four minutes, my meal is ready, and it's delicious as well. Last night while I was editing this podcast, I heated up the pork shepherd's pie with white cheddar Yukon mash and roasted green beans. Not only was the prep time non-existent, but I was able to get a lunch break in and still get the podcast out for all of you to hear without taking a significant break. They have plenty of other meal options as well. There's vegan and veggie meals, keto, low-calorie options, cold-pressure juices, smoothies, energy bites, plant-based bars, extra protein, the one I chose, veggie sides, and more to keep you fueled and focused all day long. Don't hesitate. 
Head to go.factor75.com slash filmschool60 and use code filmschool60 to get 60% off your first box. That's code filmschool60 at go.factor75.com slash filmschool60 to get 60% off your first box. Joining me now here on the Knicks Film School podcast, a man that hopefully for those of you with HBO Max subscriptions are well aware of and well familiar with. Uh, for those of you that lean certain ways politically, you probably already know who this person is, especially uh, if you were around during the the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, his movie, the short film 38 at the Garden, is now available, as I mentioned, on HBO Max. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Frank Chi, how are you today, sir? Thank you for having me. I'm good. I'm good. It's, uh, you know, we're obviously in the middle of a bit of a whirlwind press tour, but I'm really glad to take the time to talk to you. And thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It's it's a pleasure to have you. And, you know, I'm sure you've gotten the reaction from um, the obvious places of like why you were attached to the project. I have to come at it from what I know. And it's I'm coming at it from a Knicks fan. And I know Linsanity on a much different level means so much more to like the Asian American community and on a much lower level, that's less important. It means so much more, so much to Knicks fans as well. Cause it's the one like pure unadulterated joy that we experienced oh, man. over the past like 20 years. Yes, so I want to start there and get that out of the way. Have you heard that from Knicks fans and their reaction to the Knicks fans that have seen the film? Oh yeah. And like, look, okay. I'll, I'll just be real with you. I am a, I am a struggling, dormant Knicks fan. Like I'm one of those. Okay. I'm one of those kids that like grew up like a front runner '90s Bulls fan, and then when MJ retired, I was like, I grew up in Connecticut, so I'm like, okay, I need a team. I need a team. I can't root for the Bulls anymore. And um, that was '99, the lockout year when you know LJ hitting that four pointer. Like I became a Knicks fan. Right. Mm -hmm. Go to the finals. We we all think we have a chance. We don't have a chance. But like. Like, and then like the next year they, they went to the conference finals, right? Like, so like I became a Knicks fan that way. Um, but I, um, because the team breaks my heart so much, I, I just go in and out, you know, mm -hmm. and Linsanity was when I went really in, I you know, you can, can imagine. imagine so, yeah. so I have the double whammy of being Asian American and being a Knicks fan. <laughs> so I think, I mean, in many ways, that's the reason why I think the movie feels the way that it does. Right. Because um, I am taking people into my lens as close as possible, but it was clearly the lens of millions of people, which is why the interview subjects can essentially replace me talking, I think, so well. I mean, in many ways, way better than I could say, to be honest. Well, it's funny you you mentioned that the people that you interviewed and your interview subjects for the film are, you know, they can fill in for your perspective just right. as well. And yet, one of my curiosities, since I know that, yeah, now I now I knew you were a Knicks fan. That was going to be my question. Did you grow up a Knicks fan? And that's another way that you were attached to it. Yeah, Just I mean, flat out. What was your reaction when Linsanity was happening? I know you did a whole film that kind of tells uh, the story of your reaction. But from your words, what was going on I as mean, it was me, happening? Me personally, I lost my mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, can you imagine? Like I, I. So I'll put it this way. Um, I am, if anything, I am like a diehard UConn fan because I grew up in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And the first time I ever heard of Jeremy Lin was, you know, in the movie he talks about he purposely didn't get a scholarship offer from any team 
any school, but he was like, I'm going to go to Harvard because it's D1 and I get to play against other D1 schools. Well, it worked, right? Because he goes into Gamble Pavilion the year after UConn makes the final four. UConn has like Kemba Walker. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he drops, this is an ESPN team. That's an ESPN televised game. He drops 30 on UConn and dunks twice. And I was like, what? Like who, who, like, who is this? You know, like, I'm not from like, you know, a lot of Asian Americans have like Cali memories of, of Jeremy, right? They heard about him from high school or whatever, but like, I don't, I mean, I grew up around here. So like, I was just like, what, what's going on? And I didn't hear much about him. I mean, I sort of, I somewhat followed his career afterwards. I knew that the Warriors picked him up and I thought that was cool, but I didn't have any expectations to be honest with you. I think everybody felt that way. Uh, except for obviously, except for Jeremy and his family, right? Like he, I mean, and this is sort of part of the way the stereotypes are internalized for a lot of Asian Americans. You know, Hassan mm-hmm. Minaj talks about this really well in the movie. Um, so when he got onto the Knicks, I was just like, "Oh, that's cool." <laughs> I wasn't like rooting because I like, man, this guy's never getting any playing time. Dan Tony's never going to put this guy in, on the on the court, right? And I remember I didn't watch that Nets game when he checked in. I didn't watch it. Um, I, but I remember like watching sports center afterwards being like, yo, what? Mm-hmm. Like this is real. And remember like, this is like, you know, I think Baron, Baron Davis just hurt his back. I mean, the Knicks were like down and out on injuries. Right. So, I mean, like, and then what happened afterwards, I, I was, like, I put it this way to people. Like if you wrote that out and you pitch it to a movie studio, they'd be like, get out of here. Well, it's you know? funny you it's funny you mentioned the movie studio part of it because yeah. I was reading a couple of interviews that you did and you said how Bend It Like Beckham oh, was yeah. one of the more important films to you. And a oh, lot yeah. of a lot of sports movies, you know, as somebody who grew up watching sports and obviously developed a passion into a career around covering sports, there are, are movies that I fall for and go revisit all the time. And yet the Jeremy Lin story is a sports movie that script, like if you've said it, I'm pretty sure in one of your interviews, that's yeah. the script gets rejected. Like yeah. this is not supposed to happen the way no. that it was. And yet, especially the Laker game, like I'll just, I'll just share a little bit of my perspective. I was in college at the time and the first half of that season had beaten it out of me so bad. Like they were 18 and 25 yeah. when that first Nets game happened that I like didn't renew my NBA T uh, league pass subscription. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? Let me get good grades this semester. This is just not worth my time. <laughs> and then for like the first night, because the, the, the that Nets game was a third night of a back to back to back. They lose in Boston. They lose a, against Chicago at home. And this was, again, the lockout shortened season. So everybody had to play one back to back to back. Mm. And that Friday night, D'Antoni, desperate for his job, was like, I'm going to put this guy in and see what happens. Yeah. And then I, like you, checked the box score. I was like, wait, what? Okay. So like, we have a point guard points. now. What? And then the next right? two nights happen. And I was like, all right, he's playing Kobe on Friday. Yeah. I can actually see it because I'm in Virginia. And so I went with a bunch of buddies and we watched it live. And obviously the rest is history. What went into making the Laker game, the focus of mm. the doc? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a, a, a I'll, I'll give you some background on how we came up with this idea. Okay, cool. Uh, my background, as you mentioned, is in politics. Um, and I, I, I entered politics as like a Barack Obama person. I like, I, as an act of belonging. Okay. Right? And it was because, and, 
me, me and my one of my producers, Trayvon Free, in 2020, we were having hey. this conversation. Yeah. Right. And Trayvon and I were talking about impossible moments. Like, what is a moment when society at large tells a group of people you can't do something and then somebody comes out of nowhere and just shatters like in front of the whole world? And we were obviously talking about in the context of Obama. That is the OG impossible moment for anyone. That's a, that's a lie. <laughs> and um, so he was like, yeah, what other moments feel like that? And I'm like, listen, man, like, I'm Asian. Like, there's only one answer. <laughs> And it's insanity. Yeah. And the way I said it to him was the two most magical nights of my life is the night that Obama was elected president and the night Jeremy dropped 38 at the garden. That's why the movie is called 38 at the garden. It's from that conversation. Um, that's, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, I was living in DC at the time, right? And I missed that Wizards game. I had like some kind of thing I couldn't get out of. And, you know, he dunked on John. Like, I was so angry at myself that I missed that game. So I was just like, I am not missing the Lakers game. Maybe this is the game where it all ends because it is Kobe, right? Like maybe it is, but um, I hop on the Amtrak. I just like take a take a train up, and I'm like, you know, like Penn Station is like right. You literally go up the escalator you're in the garden. I'm like, I remember I'm like, I was running up the escalator. I just like, got out of the train. I just like ran up the escalator, and I try to get in. And the scalpers were they were merciless. I think it was like seven hundred dollars for like nosebleeds, right? I'm like 27, 26. I have no money. I was like, I'm not, I don't know what to do, right? Like, I'm going to be really bummed if I missed this game, mm-hmm. but I'm not paying $700 for nosebleeds, okay? So, you know, Koreatown's like right next door. So I, I end up going to Koreatown and I plop myself down and I want to like the karaoke bars. And I'm like, all right, I'll watch it this way. And I, I tell Jeremy this, I'm like, looking back on it, I don't think I would have traded that experience for actually even being in the garden. Because mm. I was surrounded by people who look like me or maybe my age a little bit older. And, you know, you know the game. We all know the game. There's two hours of people losing their minds, right? So I'm surrounded by people who look like me, and they're like people are running around. They're crying into their beard. They're screaming, and I'm like, I'm look. I'm doing all those things too, but I'm like, what is it? Like, is it maybe the wall of stereotypes that people feel like they have to deal with mm. every day, and all of a sudden they have this cathartic reaction seeing someone break all of them on the world stage? Is it? I don't know the fact that maybe your parents made you play violin and piano and didn't let you play basketball that you're just living your childhood dream through somebody who came out of nowhere and did it. Like, is it the internal conflict, the external conflict? Is it both? It was certainly both for me to be honest. Right. And like, that's why I reacted that way. And I like, I like if forever, like I remember at the end of the night, there was like some guy who was like three, four people down for me at the bar. And like, it's obvious at this point, the Knicks were going to win. It's just like when he hit the free throws and it was like, his mm. own. Right. And this guy just like he slams the table and he just runs out the door. <laughs> right. And you're like, and usually like a bartender would be like, get him back and use the papers tap. That's what you would say. It was like that kind of night. Right. And yeah. I I mean, looking back, I mean, just like telling that story makes me emotional. And how how can we recreate that emotion while living through all of the highlights? Right. The Derek Fisher spin move is like the thing that I remember the most from the game. Right. We obviously put our onus on that. Um, the, the, the shot that he take, take, takes to seal the game, the way we, we describe it in, in the movie, it's all, that's another big moment for me. Um, but like, honestly, a lot of it was like the pregame stuff when Kobe was like, yo, I don't know who this kid is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had never heard Jeremy's story about that. Right. He's sitting like, I'm just going to take the shot. 50 50 if i'm if, if i have if i'm open i'm just gonna take the shot i'm like damn right like i didn't i just didn't know 
his mindset walking into that game. But man, like again, what we're saying, like, like I been about Ben like Beckham was like the most important movie of my life, right? And I described 30 at the garden and more or less what happened, what Jeremy did as Ben like Beckham on steroids. Yeah. Right. It's as if the girl in Ben like Beckham came to the US and then became the best like like female soccer player for like two weeks, right? Like that's <laughs> If you put that in the movie, people be like, get out of here. If Ben like Beckham 2 was about that, people wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the the part about Lynn Sandy that just again, the the rejection of the script that will always yeah. blow my mind. It wasn't just that he came and got a shot and was good. It was he was running the league for for two and a half weeks, you know? And <laughs> again, I I'm Unfortunately, being at that school out of state, I don't have the New York atmosphere mm. to compare it to. So I could really only compare it to like what my friends were saying yeah. about the game. Um, and then obviously, and the, the documentary makes it. I was, hold on. I, I got to get my friends have my, my film friends have corrected me. The film. It's because just because the documentary doesn't mean it's not a film. I will correct myself <laughs> on that. Um, the film make does a good job of the perspective of obviously what this film means to Asian Americans, what it means to minorities. And so I also, I appreciate like what it means for people that don't look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, have you talked to, obviously you, you interviewed Jeremy, you, you sat down with him and got to know him through this, but like, had you ever had a conversation with Jeremy Lin? Like what was it like meeting him for the first time? Well, when, when we first came up with the idea, we didn't know Jeremy. Okay. Right? And but our other producer, Sigmar Hernandez, like he knows every athlete in America. So within like one degree of separation, we were on the phone with him. And you know, look, I can't first of all, I can't imagine what it's like to be become a symbol for people. You're a human being, right? Like, how do you how do you react to becoming a symbol? People putting their hopes and dreams onto you. Mm. I I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to handle that. But I think if you don't know somebody and what that person means a lot to you, what they did means a lot to you, you sort of just assume that like they see it exactly the way that you do. I think we're all, we're all human. We all tend to do that. Um, and I just always assumed that Jeremy like saw it exactly the way that I did. Right. And when I first talked to him, I was like, I was struck by like, just how humble he was about the process. He was like, look, man, I'm just, I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> I'm trying to not get cut. Like, I'm not thinking about the societal impact of me hitting this shot. Like, I'm trying to make it in the league. So that was, like, really, like, illuminating for me to be like, you know, like, yeah, like, these are human beings. They're not just symbols. Like, they they have to do it, right? And the second thing he said to me that really struck me was, like, you know, like, after the Sandy happened, he played nine years in the NBA. He was like, you know, like, I ran away from Lizanity for a long time because I didn't want to be the final. I didn't want that mm. to be the only thing people remember me for my career, right? And that really struck me too because I just didn't even think about it. Now. I was like, he, there's no, he doesn't get it. Of course, he gets it like that. And I, I, I appreciated how open he was uh, to me about the fact that he didn't enjoy insanity for so long. Um, and I gave him my perspective, right? And I. <laughs> Obviously, given my background and given the fact that we were just talking about that impossible moment thing, I kept on saying Obama, Obama. He was like, yo, you need to stop comparing me to Obama. <laughs> to the president. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was really, that was like, that was really funny. But again, like once we got to the point where like, hey, this is happening in the context of 
this is so many people's favorite Asian American memory, but we're reliving it during the worst time to be Asian American mm-hmm. in modern history, right? How important is it for us to remind people that anything is possible? Because I'll tell you what, we're, we're, when we make the movie, like the first thing we're thinking about is like, who are we making it for? Like, who's the audience, right? And I thought we were making a millennial nostalgia movie, totally honest with mm-hmm. you, right? I had no idea that we actually were making like a, a movie for kids. Um, what do you mean, a movie for kids? The movie is about anything as possible. Mm. If you think about, you know, we had we had a Nick screening at Tribeca, and uh, Jeremy invited a lot of like Asian American community organizations to come. And you've seen the end of the movie; you know what it's about. There's this little kid; he's like no older than ten years old. He's sitting there near the front. He's weeping. Mm. He's weep- I don't know what you were like when you were ten. I was an idiot. I, like maybe <laughs> unless it was like Friday the Thirteenth or something, there was no movie that was make me cry. You know, like you know what I mean. Like I just, yeah, like, yeah. I just didn't understand society on that level. Um, so like I was like, you know, what has this kid seen in the last couple of years to make someone that young weep at the end of the movie? And you know, if you think about what it's like to be like an Asian American parent these days, you're sending your kid to school and you're like, stay masked, don't say a word. If you make the toys, if you, especially if you sneeze. They're going to call you China virus. They're going to call you Kung flu. Mm. You know, like don't, don't draw attention to yourself. That is not any way to raise a child period. Right. And like, but like, I'm not blaming them. Like they don't want their kid to be bullied. Right. But like yeah. those kids didn't, they most likely weren't alive when the insanity happened. And if they were, they were very young. So what I didn't realize was, yes, we're making a nostalgia movie for people in their late thirties who had this incredible moment, right? But the actual audience are the kids who never saw it happen, who are being sort of, you know, like beaten into their head every day to be quiet and not make noise and not drink, draw attention to yourself. The point of insanity is to take the shot, to be yourself, to make space for yourself in a country that doesn't really make space for you. And when I realized that, I mean, like, I mean, I love to sit here and tell you that like, that's what our intent was, but we didn't know that that's how it was going to like, you know, like so many people come up to us and they're like in tears and they're like, we're going to go home and we're going to watch this with our kids. Mm. We want our kids to watch this movie. Um, and that's, what, that's been really special, man. Like, you know, the, the age of anti-Asian violence is like hard for people to talk about because it's such a hard topic. But if I were to describe 30 at the Garden without any basketball whatsoever, I would say part one is about stereotypes. Part two is about what happens when someone shatters those stereotypes on the world stage. And part three is about today when those stereotypes have been weaponized. And then when they're weaponized, they turn into anti-Asian violence. It's not very hard to understand. Like yeah. when I say it out loud, right? Like those stereotypes have been around. They were around when I was a kid growing up. I just didn't feel I was threatened all day. All of a sudden they get weaponized during the age of COVID and we have anti-Asian violence. So as long as we can have that conversation, as long as we can also relive how incredible insanity was, whether you're Asian American or Knicks fan, we're just, a fan of underdogs in general, right? And as long as like it can have that kind of impact, not just on Asian Americans who remember that so fondly, but on kids who need to see an example that anything is possible in this country, then we've done our job. Well said, man. You answered like all of the the questions about like <laughs> what the the actual important message of the movie yeah. that I had. You know, like I was I was gonna I was wondering what the intent was going in. I was wondering the timeline of mm-hmm. if you had the idea and. This was storyboarded before the uh, the pandemic started, and then took on wow. a new a new uh, tone as it kept going. Um, I guess my only one of my other questions would just be like, 
Is it like important you got to tell this story that it wasn't like, like no disrespect to any of the other like white directors out there, but that <laughs> someone with your background got to tell it. Yeah, Denzel has this, this clip that went viral a couple of years ago that like he had to be the one to tell fences or yeah. like Scorsese had to be the one to tell the story of Goodfellas oh, or Spielberg, right, 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 right. Uh, Schindler's List. Like, is it important that you got to tell the story of insanity? I, I think so. Um, I'm not like, uh, I think as long as you surround yourself by, with a good team, you have the right perspective and you're really respectful, like things can be collaborative, right? I'm, I'm always someone that believes that. Um, but I think that as long as, um, like, like, for example, there are jokes in that movie that like, you just don't know. Not, not like you can't even tell, like, you just don't know if you're not Asian, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like the way we talk about David Ho, like in the childhood part. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, like David Ho was on my fridge. Like when I was a kid, you know, like that's what I mean. It's like, those are really unique perspectives that obviously somebody from that background would be able to have um, telling a story about Asian Americans, right? Like you can't, you can't tell a story about Jeremy Lin. You know, I, I guess you can't you could talk about it. Just what happened on the court. It was crazy. Frenzy in New York, right? Like basketball everywhere. Like you can tell that story, but it will be devoid of the the identity issues and how, and just the, the point of view that I think is really important to tell a story like that. Um, yeah. But like, you know, like this is, this is the unfortunate part of like fighting for more representation, like in the industry that I think it's trying to do good, but it's also just this gigantic behemoth that is hard to move. Um, you have more and more examples of people who get to tell stories um, that otherwise wouldn't have been been told. But uh, you know, one, I'll just be very honest with you about one of the reasons why we made it a short. Like we made it a short because it's an Asian story. Like this is not a story about you know somebody kicking someone in the head or you know somebody really rich and acting outrageous. You know, like this is not. A, a, this is a story about an Asian guy who defies the odds, mm -hmm. right? And unfortunately, all the movies that I love about Asian Americans that tell like a really authentic story to me, they don't get any buzz, man. Yeah. Right? That it's not it's not like this gigantic kung fu flick or something. And like we were like when we when we when we approached this, we were like, man, like we're not gonna give anybody excuse another watch. Mm. It's gonna be 38 minutes. Right. Especially as we got closer and we're like, oh it could be 30 minutes, let's make it 38 minutes. Because that's the bargain that we're striking with the American viewer, right? People like don't pay attention to Asian stories um, unless you fit one of those dynamics that I said earlier. And we were like, okay, we could do it in 38 minutes. We're going to do it in 38 minutes. And we're going to make sure that it's, it's, like, if you tell me that you haven't watched it, you, you, you can't say it with a straight face because I'm going to be like, man, are you sure you don't have 38 minutes to sit down and just watch the movie? You can't, you can't tell me that. Um, that, that's, I mean, that's right up the reason why we made it a short. It's because, I mean, all of these reasons factor into making the movie. And that's, I mean, obviously that's a decision that I made because I'm Asian too. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to, it, it clicked way too late that what you meant by outrageous and rich. Cause yes, crazy rich Asians. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love to that. I, I love crazy rich Asians. Yeah. I love house of hope. I watch all of those things. Mm -hmm. Right. But like at the end of the day, like, I don't want to be outrageous to get noticed, you know? And have you seen uh, every, everything everywhere all at once? 
amazing. I mean, that movie yeah. just blows my mind. Yeah. I've seen it yeah. three times in theaters now, and like every single time, I'm just like, I feel delirious. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, that's, I mean, that's the best way you can you can you can put it. Um, and the fact that that got made the way that it did is extraordinary. Yeah, I agree. it's currently my number one of 2022. So I'm, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. If I doubt anything will top it because I'm also on my. I think my next viewing will also be like my fourth or fifth. Um, <laughs> it gets gets better every time. A um, couple more before I let you go. A little bit about the filmmaking in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, like we're talking about the, as you said, the impossible nature of the story and uh, just the the legend that is Lynn Sanity. Mm-hmm. And there's animation throughout the movie. And I almost, <laughs> I, it almost helped make it feel like a dream that you recreated parts of the story and the movie right. uh, and like the game through the animation um i just spot on mike d'antoni cartoon (laughs) illustrations i should say the the voice that tyson chandler does for mike d'antoni might be i I want to make that my text ringtone uh (laughs) what went into the decision to include the the illustrations throughout Um, the movie our animator is incredible his name is miguel hernandez okay die hard knicks fan okay die hard so like that perspective, obviously, it fit. Everything fit for this movie. Um, look, there are things about retelling a story that happened 10 years ago that's not all on camera, especially the private sections. You know, like, we, we get footage of on the court and, like, some of the hype around it. But, you know, like, if you don't have animation, how are you going to tell that couch story, man? Yeah. Right? When they show the, the couch being yeah. short, shorter and shorter, right. Landry Field's couch, yeah. You know, if you, yeah. you don't have it, like, how do you how do you tell the story about stereotypes in the beginning, right? We have that run of stereotypes in that in the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, it just I think animation and both just the choice of having comedians be such a big part of this movie. It it adds light, light a lightness to a really heavy topic, um, and I think it comes across that way. So it's a combination of like bringing some lightness to the story and the fact that some of these things you just can't. You just have to recreate because they're so personal. Yeah, um, that's why yeah. we we went the animation route. But it's so good. I, I mean, I'm gonna sit here. I said it earlier about the music, right? Our composer Gina Han is just a genius, right? It just feels kinetic. Like when you're sitting there, you're watching this game. You hear that those drums. It feels like you're on the edge of your seat. I mean, whether it's Gina with the composer or Miguel Hernandez, our our, our animator, or just our our, our DP, Othello Benassi. Mm-hmm. The way he framed all these shots. I mean, everything is, is beautiful. It really is. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed the the filmmaking throughout. I was curious if anything that you wanted to include, because I'll this is where I will take credit. I picked up on the 38 minutes. It's like, <laughs> oh, I see what you guys are doing here right away. Yeah. So did anything get cut because you were so trying to be so precise with the runtime? I mean, we didn't cut anything for the runtime. Um, there are a couple of interviews that I, I wish we could have gotten. And then there are a couple of interviews that we, it just it didn't end up fitting. I think, you know, the, the folks that you see that's on screen are like, I mean, it's just, you have three comedians at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can put it. Like, the, like Jenny Yang. Ronnie Chang, Hassan Menaj are like, they're literally operating on a level that I can't. It made me realize just how much of a skill being funny is. 
right? Mm. I think if you don't really interact with comedians at all, you think it's like a, a God-given talent or something. You really do. And then you yeah. like realize like it's a craft and like people hone in every day. Um, and that was like one of those things I was really awed at um, during that interview process. And just like, you know, people who aren't even comedians are funny in the movie. <laughs> like Shump is hilarious. Shump yeah. is like, I mean, the way Shump describes scenes, right? The way he, I mean, I just, there was just some things, the way he put them, I was like, wow, like I thought that way, but I've never described it that way. I don't think I ever could even put a gun to my head and describe it that way. Like the way he was like, you ever, you ever played against basketball against a guy who's sleeping on the couch, mm-hmm. right? Like playing against a desperate man is totally different. I mean, that's, that brings you in immediately in a way that I just, I couldn't, I didn't even think I could say it like that. So Tyson is hilarious. Jeremy is hilarious. Yeah. I was going to say know? Jeremy's like, really funny too. Yeah. yeah. Everybody, everybody is just, everybody brings it in, in a way where we're like, okay, like, I mean, like the Knicks fans we talked to, they were all hilarious. Like, so once we, once we realized what the tone was, we sort of, we, we, we zeroed in on, on uh, the interviews that really fit that vibe. No, it makes sense. Um, so before I let you go, um, I'll just say like one of the things I said in my review, you're hinting at it now, the, the humor that exists throughout like the first two thirds yeah. of the movie. And then the gut punch of the yeah. the fade to black and then present day and just realizing where we are really adds a lot of heart to to mm. this 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 film and this story. And look, Knicks fans will hopefully go there because they want to relive a time that just everything was awesome for a good two and a half <laughs> weeks. And we didn't, we didn't care when or if it was going to end. We yeah. just wanted to enjoy like the one good thing that nobody could say oh, anything bad about man. for two weeks. Hey, and then hopefully that, this year is better, right? <laughs> well, some of us, like, listen, I'm actually very high on the current team. Hey, that um, game last night, the, the preseason game was great. Wasn't it great? Yeah. yeah. I'm not, listen, we, we tried to, it, it's funny because he's now a friend of the pod, Jeremy Lynn. Um, we were saying Jalen Brunson is the best since Stefan Marbury, but we also have added the addendum and of course, friend of the pod, Jeremy I mean, Lynn. I mean, but, yeah, yeah okay. we, I'll, I'll take that, but you know, I'm always a partial Kemba Walker person because of UConn. So, well, that I know, of, I know, that I know. Version we don't of have to talk about it. We don't have to talk about it. I'm still upset about it. I'm, I'm guess, sure. Uh, listen, that version of Kemba is not the represent the representative sample size of Kemba Walker. Yeah. So, Totally Listen, true. I grew up a Yukon totally too, a Yukon fan too. I was like obviously when I went to college, I had to adopt yeah. the alma mater, but um, but still I, it just it just feels like for like New York homecomings, they've become like a curse. Mm. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah, like it just it just makes me because like it well, just looks so right. That's why I felt when I was a kid about Stefan too. I was like, it just looks so right. It looks so right, like homecoming king, right? And it just mm. doesn't work out in a way that just like, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I will. I will. I will never get over it as a UConn person. I will never get over it. I'm just being honest. <laughs> well, hopefully the the Villanova kid can bring some good memories and yeah. bring you and rope you back in. Uh, I want to definitely end, not the team to rope me back in, but I'll, that's I'll not. But <laughs> believe me, I understand. If I if I understand. Um, having said that, one thing I wanted to end the pod with is. Uh, inspired by uh, one of my favorite podcasts, The Big Picture, uh, Sean Fantasy asks every interview with the filmmaker. Uh, the last question is, "What's the last great thing you saw?" So, 
what is the last great thing you saw? Film, TV Man. show? Um, I'm I'm one of those like Soderbergh people, as in like I write down everything I watch and I watch a lot of stuff. I'm okay. just gonna pull up my list. Okay. So, um, are you on Letterboxd or is it like? Uh, I'm not. I am on Letterboxd, but I'm definitely not telling you what my okay uh, what my handle is. <laughs> gotcha. Um, like I don't need other filmmakers knowing what what. Yeah, it's totally fair. Totally fair. I just didn't know if that was the list you were going to, or if you had like a an Excel spreadsheet. I uh, for like years I had a notes. A, a list in my notes in my phone, and then I found yeah. out Letterboxd exists. And was I, like, I'll oh, tell you, I could have uh, been ranking last, here the whole time. The last TV show that I really loved was The Undeclared War. Okay, what's that about? It's it's about cyber war between uh, the UK and Russia. Okay, unbelievable. Um, this summer I really loved The Offer. The about the, the retelling of, the of the yeah, The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I would say movie most recent movie is it's obviously everything everywhere all at once i watched it again on the, on the three dollar september third day that was like that was my my movie to watch um for for the for the bargain day yeah um i also like i'll be honest with you man like i love top gun like that movie was has no business being as good as it is and yet it's it, outstanding I, yeah i'll put it this way if you're a story person you understand this really well it's it's a it feels as epic as it does because it's two really big story arcs wrapped into one. It's a reconciliation story between him and Goose's son, but it's also a swan song for him as like the last pilot before the age of the drones, right? So you have a reconciliation story wrapped in a swan song. And that's when you put those things together. It just feels yeah. incredible. I mean, it's, 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 it's storytelling, filmmaking at its height. Even if you don't like the culture, even if you don't like what Top Gun represents like you just can't deny that yeah no, believe me i agree um both <laughs> both movies in my top five for the year yeah. so far um frank this was this was a blast thank you for for taking the time i i know it's we do Thanks this at the me. end and it we do this at the end of every interview where we ask people to plug something but yeah. i'm pretty sure this whole thing was a plug for <laughs> the thing that you'd like uh, people to go see so i'll do it for you um 38 at the garden is available on hbo max um it is 38 minutes and if you are Nick's fan watching this if you are a person watching this uh it is well worth your time um anything you'd like to say before you get out of here not like i appreciate you taking the time andrew and um i hope people tell their i mean i'll put it this way i hope people watch it with their kids that's that's the uh that's the best experience that i think i can i can describe for what this movie will mean to people so, awesome yeah there you go. garden october 11th there you go. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate it, Andrew. All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview uh, with Frank Chi. And if you are listening to this and you have not already checked out 38 at the Garden, uh, you should do so because it's a fantastic documentary and Frank did a fantastic job with it. And uh, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. And before we get into this actual Knicks season and get lost in the sauce of all that, uh, take a break to go back and, and relive what was a pretty special time 11 years ago. I also want to say a quick thank you uh, to all the folks at HBO uh, for helping with everything. Uh, this was, uh, well, all credit to Andrew Claudio for... Uh, 
really putting the wheels of motion on several of these things, including getting Jeremy initially. Uh, but HBO support along the way was uh, nothing short of extraordinary, and we appreciate them. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, maybe our paths will will cross again uh, in the future. And thank you, listeners, for checking out another episode of the Next Film School podcast. We're back with you. Um, we'll be back with you soon because we got uh, a. Uh, post game pod dropping following the Indiana uh, game, which is going to be played tonight as you're listening to this. Then we got a mailbag pod dropping with uh, Chris. So be on the lookout for uh, solicitation of questions on the old twitter.com. And then another uh, post game dropping uh, for Saturday morning because we got a final preseason game on Friday night. Before you know it, the real games begin. Until then, talk to you soon. Peace out. Later.